Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week I sit down with Nobel laureate and Florida State University chemistry professor Sir Harold Croto. In our wide-ranging conversation, Harry talks about his professional interests, his life both inside and outside of academia, and the discovery that would eventually win him the 1996 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Dr. Crota, I'd like to start just by kind of learning a little bit about um, your Harry. academic, Harry, okay. your, uh, your academic background. How did you initially get interested in science back in the day? I, I don't know that I was ever interested in science. Yeah. I just was interested in everything and, and nothing was particularly less or more interesting than anything else. And as far as I'm concerned, I was interested in art and playing sport and how things worked. And I didn't think about anything called science. It wasn't was. I mean, I didn't even think that I was going to be a scientist. I just was um, better at um, scientific subjects at school, um, and art, and history and geography, but not that great at uh, languages. I didn't like languages very much. Um, my parents were from Germany, and uh, up in Bolton in Lancashire, you just wanted to be English at the, during after the war. So, um, I. I didn't find it uh, very interesting because languages are just a communications medium and I could already c- communicate in English and there was no one around who spoke French or German, so it didn't seem very useful. Um, of course, it is useful when you travel, but I wasn't traveling when I was hmm. seven or eight years ago, old after the war. So I uh, got more and better and better, I suppose, um, I was never top of the form, but I was close to it in most things. And my father insisted that my science and maths homework was number one and mm. other things came high, but not as important to him. He was a refugee and he realized uh, quite rightly, I suppose, that uh, I had a better statistical chance of getting a job, which is the important thing, mm. if I had um, good science and maths. Hmm. So uh, that's how I ended up uh, doing that at uh, university chemistry. And But at a university, I felt that uh, I wanted to do many things. I felt the same at school, so I... I made myself a good tennis player. I, I mean, you know, I sort of, I'm, I wasn't, I don't think I'm a, a natural sportsman, but I, um, as some people just, you know, they seem to do everything quite easily. Uh, so I made myself a good tennis player and we, you know, uh, and I made myself whatever I am. Um, and uh, and of, of all the science subjects out there, you had the most aptitude for chemistry. Well, um, I think so, yes. I mean, obviously I, that. But I also had a teacher who I empathized with in chemistry, a guy called Harry Heaney, who became a professor um, at the university later on. He left the – he was only at the school a couple of years, I think, and then went back into academia and – uh, he gave me extra uh, advice, I think, on, on, on chemistry and things. He did things, had done things as a PhD student, which interested me in, in chemistry, organic chemistry. And then I also had extra lessons in art and art from the art teacher, a guy called Mr. Higginson. And uh, when I went to university, I played tennis for the university and I was art editor for the student magazine and I got involved with student politics and became president of Athletics Council at university. 
but I also worked pretty hard on my chemistry and science and then did a PhD. And so I, I felt university was not just uh, learning experience in chemistry. <clears throat> For me, it was an all-round experience. And when people talk about uh, the Internet and uh, a revolution in education, I think, it, yes, it is for those who can't go to university. But for those who can, um, the university is a, a life-changing experience and is a, a stepping stone from school uh, to developing responsibility and uh, exploring other avenues of your um, your potential creativity um, on to, you know, to, I guess, getting a job where you no longer have such um, easy, uh, open access to many things. And I think people should be aware of that. This is, this is a revolution, but all, I think uh, universities are very important. Um, cultural experience of meeting other people and peers, and, and not just in your own subject, but in wide range of subjects, because uh, my friends are in... Journalism, we're in journalism, in uh, dentistry, in architecture, and <laughs> um, sport, and things like this. Talk about the bulk of your academic career after you got your PhD and the sort of work that you did and the first 10, 20, 30 years after you started actually becoming a professor and working in chemistry. Well, I didn't know whether there was going to be any good at it. I mean, I, I don't. I don't think I have any special aptitude for science. I don't necessarily think I'm any special aptitude for anything other than I have I work hard and uh, I have worked hard. Although it's getting more difficult as you get to, to my age uh, to to get over these real energy, which quite to work as hard as I do and Margaret does, my wife. And um, so I I think I just put my effort into what I was doing. I never put in a second-rate effort if I was going to do something. I just did it to the best of my ability, which I always recognized was not necessarily as good as some other people are, as, as able in mathematics or as able in chemistry or as able in tennis or as able in graphics. But somehow that determination not to put in a second-rate job um, is, very, is more important than one's ability, mm. one's apparent ability, whatever that is. So uh, I went, uh, we went to Canada to do, a, I did a postdoc in Canada for two years and then I went to Bell Labs for, I was at the National Research Council, which was the mecca of my subjects, molecular spectroscopy. Then I went to Bell Labs for a year and then I was asked to consider coming back to the UK to, to do um, research uh, and teach at uh, University of Sussex, which I went back to. And then I thought, well, I'll give it five years. If it doesn't work, I'll, I'll probably go and do graphics or something which I really felt um, not so much more comfortable. I was more in control because whatever you do is you, you've done it. Whereas in science, if, if the universe doesn't play ball, then you're, you, you, the universe is in charge of science and you're in charge of whatever you do. The actual techniques are the same. I mean, you've got to be proficient at this. You've got to know your materials. You, in science, you've got to know how to do experiments and this sort of thing. But at the end of the day, there's one major difference. Um, and it's not in the technical areas. It's not in the doing areas. It's the fact that when you've created something, it's yours. And it's, it's, it doesn't matter. Whether, it's whether someone thinks it's good or not. And that's another matter. But with, the, with science, it's the way the universe is. And you, you've got to bend over backwards not to uh, um, see what you want to see. And not what's there, and um, in science that 
that's a very important factor for me because uh, um, in all other areas uh, the, you're in you're in control and it's what you think uh, it's not what is actually true or mm. what false and so i for me science gives me a sort of ethical basis in the sense that uh, you you do a work and you you find out the way the universe works and mm. even and very often it doesn't work the way you would hoped it would or you thought it would or you would want it to and that gives you a, a very different attitude to life from other people who do something and say well this is good when other people might think it's crap you know <laughs> i mean so uh, but it doesn't matter because you've created it um it'd be difficult to talk about your career generally without talking about the prize that would end up defining oh well it's, not, it's very easy for me to talk about that because i didn't go into science to i it was a job yeah. i was and uh i was off i went in and was tenured almost immediately which is was the situation then and then i thought well i'll give it five years if i'm no good at research um then i'll get out of it and do graphics because i i knew i could do i i'd done a, quite a lot of this mm. uh, i i'd won my first award for my graphic design as when i was a student and uh, people had asked me to do posters and stuff like this and i knew i could do this and i felt i could make a living out of it by then which i didn't know 10 years earlier so i i fell into this chemistry because i was asked to come back to a postdoc and then <clears throat> was tenured almost immediately. I thought, I'll give it five years, and if it doesn't work, I'll get out. Mm. Well, after five years, it's starting to motor a little bit, and it took seven years, really, and I, I actually enjoyed teaching, and uh, um, occasionally students quite enjoyed me teaching. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Not all of them, because uh, students are very different and are motivated by different types of teacher. I mean, this thing, you know, good teacher... It depends actually on a teacher-student relationship and some teachers that other people thought were bad, I thought were great. Mm. You know, I, I, I didn't want any histrionics. I just wanted to know, I wanted to know this sort of thing. So it's very much more dependent, it seems to me, on the, whether the student wants to teach themselves. So that went on. And uh, I, had a, I, I had some success and, I, and then another guy had an award and I thought, well, my stuff looks better than him. Why, don't I get, why didn't I get an award? Well, so I, a little bit later, someone, I got a little award from chemistry. Then. So I did some nice work on phosphorus and sulfur chemistry and, um, and then I had a, uh, got another breakthrough which is in radio astronomy um, some of the work that I was doing in the lab uh, produced some f uh, radio frequencies which uh, could be used by radio astronomers to detect molecules in space and we detected them and were carbon molecules in space and this was quite a breakthrough and uh, so that was number two. So I was you know, two strikes, right? So I was, uh, and uh, I was really pleased. And I thought, well, I was, you know, I was now a professor, and I was thinking it'd be nice to have three. I mean, it's, I guess the round number is always one more than than it was before. So two, w when it was one, that was great. I liked another one too, and then uh, really out of the blue. Um, just visiting Rice University, a friend Bob Curl, I went to see. A, 
um, he said yes, he'd go see Bob, uh, Rick Smalley, who's doing some nice work on cluster science. And I went, and as, as Rick was describing what he was doing in the apparatus, and he was a, a very sort of effusive character, uh, I hatched a, a very simple I thought in my mind, which had been there, but it sort of formed as I was watching what he was doing. I thought, well, here's this problem of how these carbon molecules actually came to be in the interstellar medium between stars. Uh, maybe this method of vaporizing, which is vaporizing metals and silicon, could vaporize carbon and uh, simulate the conditions in a, a carbon star. That was all. I mean, I knew it would work. I mean, I, no, I, no, I, I was no qualms about it. This was a simple experiment. Just try and do it and just uh, show one or two of my friends who were thinking of different ways that the, this was one way in which these molecules could actually occur. And that, uh, about 17 months later, I got a phone call from Bob saying, that we're going to do this experiment, are you coming, or should we send you the data? Well, here I made a major decision. I, I got on a plane in two days and uh, went there. Uh, and a part of the reason, of course, uh, well, not of course, was that there's a really good half-price bookstore in Houston. And so not only could I do this very quite, not saying mundane experiment, but very simple, straightforward experiment, which I knew would work because there were a beautiful paper in the 60, 1960 by a German group who'd actually more or less done this experiment but had not really had the technology that we now had to do this. And so I went, I went and lo, lo and behold, uh, out came this incredible result that uh, there was a, something else there. The experiment worked exactly as I expected, but there was something else, quite unexpressed. Well, it, it was a longer story than this, but anyway, it was the C60 molecule, Buckyball, Buckminster Fuller. In. I called it after Buckminster Fuller because um, when we got this signal, we were thinking uh, what could uh, explain why this thing was so strong, such a strong, stable s signal. And I'd been to Expo in 67 in Montreal, and uh, Buckminster Fuller's Dome had made a great impression on me. Sufficiently large impression that I even thought of going to work with him. <coughs> Sorry, there's a frog in my throat. And uh, in fact, um, I was, I think I came out of the library with, with his, with Buckminster Fuller's uh, address where his research was being carried out. At the same time as I walked out, I think I was offered a job at the University of Sussex, so I didn't actually go. I was going to write to him, and I, I never wrote that letter, unfortunately. It would have been nice to have had that letter many years later, 1966, 1985, so nearly 20 years later. Um, no, it's 1967. Anyway, um, so we, we made this big discovery, and uh, it was total serendipity, and uh, it led to the Nobel Prize. And I never went in for, for prizes. I, I don't think do about doing things. I don't think about doing things important. I never thought about the prize. After we made the discovery, then, of course, people were saying, you know, this is a big one, a big discovery. And I, I realized it was a big discovery. But it wasn't immediate because after 1985 to 1990, several papers said we were wrong in what we claimed and I, I, I felt 
Well, initially I thought it was obviously correct, but after a few papers saying, you know, this is not right, I looked at them. I knew their their arguments were wrong, but I thought we could could we be wrong? And I bothered me a bit. And during that period, I I remember very soon after said, well, I want to. I'd like to prove we're right. But if we're wrong, I really want to prove that I want to do that. I want to show that. I don't want someone else to shove it up my nose. So I felt very strongly about that. And I set off on a five-year campaign to try and get the evidence that we were right. And in fact, we worked. We, I worked with the Rice Group, uh, and the Rice Group worked independently, and we worked independently at Sussex. There were three efforts, and all of these started to build up very strong, um, compelling sort of circumstantial evidence that we were right. And then I developed what I call my four out of five rule, which was um, if you have uh, an observation, make an observation, um, you must um, sort of develop four or five. Five would be good. Uh, further experiments to um, to find evidence that you're correct. And um, if four out of five fit, you're almost accident on, on almost certainly right. And if the uh, if four out of five don't fit, you're almost accident on almost certainly wrong. And if you do some sort of fairly standard statistical analysis of this, you you come to the conclusion that if four out of five fit, as they did, in fact, five out of five fitted, if four out of five fitted, then you're at 99.9 or nine something percent probability that the one that doesn't fit, you've got some, you need to go back to that and check you're doing the right experiment. And, and, that, and then after five years, it was proven to be correct. And so... Um, that was the story. And uh, then, you know, if people want to give me a Nobel Prize, I mean, I'm not going to turn it down, but uh, it, it's an odd prize. All prizes are not fair, and the Nobel Prize in some ways is... I think it's a better prize than others. I think it's better research than others. I mean, on other prizes are... I don't think as much effort goes into it. But at the end of the day, for everybody who gets it, there are another 10, 20, 50 people who are so close. And because the Nobel Prize is the one that certainly within the sciences is more um, known than any other, um, it has this overriding value because people don't know many yeah. other prizes. The curious thing, of course, is I kept I key, I get some people saying that uh, I'm sure others do. You get I got the Nobel Peace Prize for chemistry, you know, and so <laughs> I mean when you get that from someone who's supposed to be a scientist, it's really a bit a bit you know. <laughs> well, we're almost out of time, but I would ask. Uh, I guess the two final questions I would want to know is how did that prize affect your life and your career afterwards? And second, what advice would you have for young people who are considering a career in science? Like, well, you know? I uh, the, the the advice I'll give you first, because as far as I'm concerned, it's not just considering life in science. I I think the advice is um, for anybody is never put in a second rate effort. If you're doing second something second rate, try and find something else to do where only your best shot will satisfy you personally, and don't do it for the teacher or for 
whoever's up there is for you personally that you feel yeah that's the best job you can do someone else could do it better but they're not as passionate about this particular thing and i think that's why i'm here it's not because i'm particularly smart or particularly good at this i mean i know my limitations and i've met some fantastic scientists and i just think wow you know these are growing these are geniuses but they don't have nobel prizes and the nobel prize is not something to go for i don't never went for prizes and if i gone for prices I thought I've got to do something important and nothing I ever did seemed important until afterwards and that's what science is the really important things are things that don't appear important ahead of time or they're just your own personal interest and something surprising comes out and that surprise comes later and the value becomes comes later a good example is the laser you could never predict that you, you could never invent a laser to for eye surgery. I mean, the eye surgeons would never do this. And people who are interested in uh, cash registers and the, in the supernatural, they're never going to invent the laser, right? Yeah. So the laser is the product of individual, often of certain individuals' imagination, perhaps working with a team. Uh, so I don't go for for that sort of science. I go for what I'm interested in. Um, and uh, what was the other question? How, how did the prize affect your, your life? And your well, I mean, I was always giving a lot of lectures. I mean, once I was doing radio astronomy, radio astronomy is a, astronomy is a very good hook. I mean, astronomers have, I'm not an astronomer, but astronomy seems to grab the attention of people, I think unfairly, because I don't think it gives as much to society as some chemistry does and some physics does. Um, but it's what's out there and so there's these beautiful pictures from NASA and so I'm not saying I'm jealous but I just think um, the astrophysics and particularly cos cosmology which is second only to religion in many cases um, gets uh, far far too much um, popular press and I think this is um, not necessarily good so you find that uh, that gets an inside track to to um, people's imagination and they think that's the only useful science or valuable science um, when it isn't so when I, when, when I did radio astronomy now I got a lot more invitations to give talks and uh, so it's a very good hook to teach and so I used to teach uh, uh, astrophysical chemistry it was a very good hook to teach real chemistry and then when the Nobel Prize comes along, of course, there are lots more invitations. But I already had a lot of invitations. I had more invitations than I needed before. I, I didn't need any more. Uh, so I get far too many. And uh, I think uh, it, it, it didn't change my life as much. But it, took, it did mean I did more presentations on the road. Hmm. And uh, certainly in Asia... Um, and China and, and India, uh, kids come out in droves to listen to a Nobel Prize winner. And um, they're very charming and they listen very attentively. And I think the West has got a problem facing because the kids over there really do uh, want to do science. And there's a large numbers of them. It's a market share issue and a lot more in China than there are in the States. <laughs> who really see science and engineering and technology as a way of getting out of the poverty and making a living. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the West still sh should wake up and realize that uh, there's a, they, they're going to be taken over. I mean, we're seeing now already very good papers out of China. Ten years ago, I never looked at a Chinese mm -hmm. paper.
Hmm. Never. Now they're coming. Hmm. Well, Harry, thank you so much for coming on the show. No today. problem. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com.